Well, it's delightful to have uh, the fair wind with us this morning. Uh, the instruments and the melodies speak just as much as words do, so I'm a bit hesitant to say too many words, um, but I want to take a few minutes to reflect on the gifts of Celtic spirituality as I understand them. Um, these gifts of Celtic spirituality have primarily to do with seeing God's goodness as being embedded within nature and within all people. Um, as Carol mentioned, Celtic spirituality is earthy and it's life-affirming. Celtic Christian spirituality has its roots in the British Isles in the very early centuries after Christ. It's assumed that Christianity arrived in Britain uh, through the Roman army as the Romans um, began to occupy England in the early first century, mid-first century. Um, and it, there may have been other entrances of Christianity as well. Um, at that time, the Celtic peoples were living in small tribes, in small settlements, um, and practicing various forms of nature worship. And their elders and healers were called druids. And slowly, as the Christian message was shared, small communities began to form, and an indigenous style of Christianity developed that was somewhat different from the Christianity on the continent. One of the early Celtic leaders was a man named Pelagius, and you may have heard his name in relation to a doctrinal conflict that developed between him and St. Augustine in the early fifth century. Pelagius lived in England in the 4th and 5th centuries. He was uh, a missionary of sorts, uh, a lay brother um, who taught and traveled to Rome in the year 380. He held the Celtic view that nature was sacred and that human beings were created in God's image and therefore humans were good in their very essence. Creation was good in its very essence. This was the starting point, and Pelagius understood salvation as allowing this goodness to flourish and to shine through. He didn't deny that there was evil in the world and problems. Um, he said in one of his letters, uh, this is what he said, our goodness is sometimes so deeply buried as to seem lost, but it is there having been planted by God and awaits its release. So salvation is allowing what already is to flourish. Now when Pelagius traveled to Rome, he developed a following there, but soon got into some conflict with other streams of Christian thinking. St. Augustine of Hippo had recently converted to Christianity, and his was a different path than that of Pelagius. Augustine had lived in Mediterranean cities <clears throat> and had led a somewhat wild life of um, partying, um, searching, promiscuity, and so on. At the age of 31, he was living in Milan, teaching rhetoric and also listening to the eloquent preaching of St. Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan. And during this time, Augustine had an experience which led to his Christian conversion. While outdoors in the city, he heard the voice of a child that seemed to be singing the words, pick it up and read, pick it up and read. 
And so Augustine went to find a Bible, and the first verse he turned to was one from Romans chapter 13. Quote, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual excess and lust, not in quarreling and jealousy, rather put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the desires of the flesh. Augustine took this as a direct and personal word from God, and he went on to become a Christian and the most influential theologian in the West. But you can see how his path was different than that of Pelagius. His conversion was marked by a strong break from his former desires of the flesh. He did not root his theology in the goodness of nature or the body. His conversion was mediated by the word of Scripture, which he understood to be above nature, transcending it, maybe even opposing it. Augustine went on to develop a theology of original sin, believing that Adam's fall from grace had irreparably damaged human nature. And so salvation for Augustine was not about allowing the original good to shine through because this original goodness had been wiped out by sin, by human sin. Salvation was instead found through, first of all, acknowledging one's fallenness and turning in faith to the atoning death of Christ on the cross and to the sacraments administered by the church. And so when Augustine heard that Pelagius was around teaching about the natural goodness of human beings, he accused him of trusting more in the goodness of humanity than in the saving power of God through Jesus Christ. Pelagianism came to be no, Pelagianism came to be known as the doctrine of relying on one's own strength, one's own goodness for salvation, or earning one's salvation. Augustine marshaled the support of African bishops, and together they convinced the Pope at that time to convene a synod to examine Pelagius' teachings. This was the year 416. And to their dismay, the Pope exonerated Pelagius, saying that it was most important to love peace in the church and to strive for harmony among the people of God. But Augustine and the bishops would not rest. They went beyond the Pope to seek the intervention of the state. And in the year 418, the emperor issued an edict of condemnation, banishing Pelagius from the city of Rome. He was exiled probably back to Wales or England or Ireland, but it's not completely clear. Uh, references to him and to his writings are found in the 5th cent century Irish texts, and it's believed he continued to write, but other, under other names. In any case, the Pelagian conviction about the inherent goodness of creation and human beings continued to be an enduring thread in the Celtic tradition, which continued to grow quietly in the British Isles without a whole lot of contact from Rome. St. Patrick, uh, author of this text we sing, was a missionary at that time. St. Bridget of Kildare was another leader who established communities of sisters. St. Aidan founded a community at Lindisfarne, and from there, um, a leader named Columba went into Scotland and founded an abbey on the island of Iona. Some of you may have heard of Iona, and there's a, 
reanimated um, re, uh, community there since the beginning of the 20th century, um, doing worship in the Celtic tradition and teaching Celtic spirituality. Celtic Christianity was following its own path out there on the fringes of the Roman Empire, largely in the tradition of Pelagius. It was not opposed to the Roman style, but it was a different kind of style. It was more earthy, more life-affirming, less orderly, um, less concerned for hierarchy and so on. Then, um, in the year 597, almost at the beginning of the 7th century, the church in Rome sent a mission to England, led by another Augustine. This is a later Augustine, um, Augustine of Canterbury, his name was. Rome was apparently concerned that the Celtic peoples had not properly adopted the Christian faith. They feared they may still be too captive to their pagan past. Um, and so a conflict started brewing then um, that came to a head in the year 664 at the Synod of Whitby in the territory of Northumbria in England. There the Celtic mission and the Roman missions met for discernment and discussion, and it was decided by the church in Rome that only the Roman mission would be supported. The Celtic style was declared to be unorthodox and was pushed to underground and to the fringes. Looked at from the perspective of today, it seems like it was a mistake of either or, you know, only, have, only allowing for one perspective. From that time on, the Roman church began to exert greater institutional authority over the ordination of priests and the rituals and beliefs of the churches of the British Isles. They tore down the old wooden structures at places like Iona and Lindisfarne to build solid stone structures instead. They were seeking to unify the church and to consolidate the Roman way. Some historians like, uh, and writers like John Philip Newell describe the Celtic style as coming more from the tradition of St. John and the Roman approach coming more from the tradition of St. Peter. Apparently at Whitby, the delegation from Lindisfarne, that was the Catholic mission, said that they traced their lineage back to St. John, the beloved disciple. They cherished that vision of John leaning on the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper, listening intently for his heartbeat. And the Roman delegation talked more about the importance of the Apostle Peter, um, highlighted in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, the only rock upon which Christ builds his church. The Romans argued for the importance of apostolic succession and church order. And these differences can be actually seen in the Gospels of John and Matthew. Matthew highlights the role of Peter more than the other Gospels. This is the only Gospel where the, the verse says that Peter is the rock upon which I'll build my church. It's the only Gospel where it has Peter walking on water following Jesus. One of Matthew's interests is to uphold Peter as the primary apostle. We know that Matthew also has a very Jewish feel in, re in respect to the law. Jesus says in Matthew, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And we know the Gospel of John has a very different character. It's, it's a blessing that there's different perspectives in our Bible. John 
is more mystical and cosmic. There's much more of a focus on love and communion. John talks about abiding with Jesus like John did at the Last Supper. Being friends, being one with him. In John's Gospel, Jesus proclaims that he has come to bring life and come to bring it abundantly. And in the text this morning, talks about may your joy be complete. You know, he talks about being one with God and the disciples are one with him and he's come so that our joy may be complete. It's just a different tone and feeling than Matthew. <clears throat> it's also more sensuous than Matthew. You know, there's a story about, um, in John about the woman coming and anointing Jesus with her tears and perfume and wiping his feet uh, with her hair. And in Matthew's version, it's similar, but the, the more sensuous details about the hair are left out. So there were different disciples of Jesus. You know, they, um, they, they understood Jesus differently, and they, they developed their own traditions. And, and from Palestine, streams went out in different directions, um, which is a good thing. It's part of the richness of Christianity. The Celtic tradition seems to be much more rooted in the mystical and sensual tradition of St. John. The old prayers from the Celtic tradition celebrate the presence of God within creation and within the elements, like the famous prayer of St. Patrick, which invokes the strength of God by invoking the energy of the elements. And it's a hymn text in one of our hymns. We're, we won't sing it today, but these are the words. I bind unto myself today the virtues of the starlit heaven, the glorious sun's life-giving ray, the whiteness of the moon at even, the flashing of the lightning free, the whirling winds, tempestuous shocks, the stable earth, the deep salt sea around the old eternal rocks. And we see this Celtic belief in Christ's presence in all things in Patrick's text that we've been singing after our scripture. Christ is within me, above me, beneath me. Christ in hearts of all who love me. Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. It's a great gift to be able to sing the music of this tradition today, to be able to hear, to be able to participate in its energy. So may it continue to be a vital part of our own Christian spirituality here at Rockway Church and in our homes as well. Amen.